welcome real quick as people are trickling in. I don't know if you've seen these bright blue uh, annual reports or not. They've been out there for a little bit. I think, I don't know how many I've made. There's been about 30 of them that have gone out, um, which is personally a little discouraging to me for how much time it took for me to, to make them. <laughs> um, but also, it has really relevant information as far as like how the year's ending financially, or if you're new, who our elders and management team members are, the, the men and women that help lead our church. Um, so I just, I really want all of you to get one of these, to leaf, leaf through it, to read through it. I think you'll be blessed by it. It's, it's an amazing to, to see and, and to, to reflect back on the year and see what God has done. It's been, been quite a journey over the past 15 years, but especially the past year and a half, God's been doing quite a bit. So pick one of those up if you think about it. Now, moving into the actual message this morning, show of hands, who in here fancy themselves as movie buff? Movie buff, right? A couple of you, less than I thought. Okay, all right. Now, out of all of you who, who enjoys movie, who, who likes going to the theater? To the movie theater. Okay, some of you. Yeah, some of you. Uh, one of my really good friends loves, loves movie theaters. BY, where are you at? Right here, right? So I'm not, I'm, to be honest, I'm kind of the more like rather sit in my, in my comfy clothes, pop some popcorn, hit the pause button if I use the restroom. Like, all, I'd rather watch a movie on my couch. But because BY loves movies so much, and particularly Marvel movies, I've gone with him probably five times over the last couple years to, to see Marvel movies in the theater. And they're pretty good. I also, I love going with him because he just loves it so much. And so it's, it's really, really fun to, to go with him and do that. But you all know how that process starts before you actually get to the theater, right? Everybody, we all know this. This is a shared experience. We see the, the trailer, right? We see a short clip. The editors have edited the best parts of the movies together, give you a taste or a glimpse of what's to come. And some movie trailers you watch and you think, mm, that's a no for me, dog, right? Like, eh, probably not. Like, the sound of music, <laughs> I got so much hate for this screen, I'm like, I'm showing it again. Despise this movie, right? This movie trailer, yeah, that's a definite no for me, dog. But then there are other movies where you see the trailer, next slide, Dak, you see it and you're like, yes, I'm going to see that, let's go. Actions, explosions, guys jumping out of planes, I'm in. I'm in. There are some trailers that you watch and you think, like, I have to see this. The movie trailer, actually, it shapes your future. You might be saying, well, come on, dude, that's, that's a little dry, dramatic. And, but is it? Like, think about it. You see, you see a movie trailer. It's so compelling. And then you begin to plan for your future, right? You get your phone out. You text your, your favorite babysitter. You mark it on your calendar when that movie's going to drop in the theaters so that you can be there. You can be there in the line to take it in in all of its cinematic glory. If, a, if it's good, if it's a good trailer, it will shape your future. Now, here's what I want you to see this morning. The Advent season which is the season that we're in. We're, we've been going through a series called Enriching Tradition throughout the whole year. So we're following the Revised Common Lectionary. It's a, a group of Christians, a bunch of Christians throughout the years have gotten together and they said, we want to teach through the scriptures systematically on a three-year rotation. 
If we were going to do that, how would we outline it? Following the major events in the history of the church and Jesus Christ. And so I said, for a year, we're going to do this. So we've been going through this. We're in the season of Advent. Advent is the time in the church calendar where we think and remember specifically the coming of Jesus as a baby during Christmas. So we look forward with joy and expectation, remembering, remembering the time when Jesus came his first time. And if you think about the Advent season, uh, it's kind of like the flow of a movie. Each Sunday kind of progressively goes through, through different stages in a movie. So this morning, we're going to kind of be in the movie trailer part of the Advent season. And as you'll see over the next coming weeks, we'll go through some serious character development, some crazy plot twists, the climax of actually when Jesus is born and the angels and they're singing and lights from heaven and wise men and friends, all this stuff. And then we'll, we'll wrap it up the Sunday after Christmas, which kind of a, a cliffhanger. Okay, so that's kind of be the flow. I've entitled the series, Coming Soon. We're going to follow the events of the Advent season, kind of in the vein of, of a movie. And so with that, I'll invite you to open your Bibles to, Matthew, or to Mark 13. And I'll be honest, at first you're going to be like, Mark 13? Never read this as a Christmas narrative. At first it doesn't feel like it, but we'll, we'll make it Christmassy, I promise. And, and you're going to see that as we read through it, it's kind of... It's kind of like a movie trailer for our Advent season. So if you open Mark 13, Mark 13, we're going to be in verse 1. And we're going to read the very first, very first verse there. And if you can do it in your, like, best movie trailer, like, as Jesus was leaving the temple, right? (laughs) Long ago, in a distant galaxy far away, right? In a world where... Everything was green. I don't know, right? As Jesus was leaving the temple, it's setting the scene for us. Now, this temple that Jesus is leaving is in the same place where Solomon built the temple, the first temple, which was amazing, just glorious. Gold everywhere, it was, it was outrageous. This is not that temple. King Herod rebuilt this temple, so this is the second temple. He reconstructed in the same spot where all of the the Jewish sacrifices and everything. It was the same function as Solomon's temple, but it's the second temple. So when we come upon Jesus and his disciples, we see that they've just worshipped in the temple, and now Jesus is leaving the temple with his disciples, all right? And I said it wasn't as glorious as Solomon's first temple, but it still was a sight to behold. And you say, how do we know that? Well, because the disciples, as they're leaving the temple, the disciples, <laughs> sorry, the disciples are like, Jesus, look at this building, right? Look in, in verse one. He said, look, teacher, what massive stones. You ever been somewhere where there's such a, an architectural feat of construction that you just, it's like, wow, how did they do that? That's what they're doing. Jesus, teacher, Look at these stones. What a magnificent building. And these guys are proud. They're proud to be Jews. They're proud that, that Herod, they're not big fans of Herod, but man, at least he, he built this awesome facility. Look at this. Look at this building. And Jesus responds, and he offers a little bit a word of correction to them. So when when they make this statement, I'm making an inference, but based on how Jesus responds, we have to assume that they're they're not only feeling a sense of pride looking at this this church that they've constructed, they're also feeling a sense of hope, right? If we could build something like this as a testament to our God and our religion, 
If we could build this, think about what else we could do. Think about how this building will carry our legacy and our faith into the future. Think about what this structure means and represents. Isn't it amazing? Isn't it awesome? We have so much hope when we look at this facility. Church, there is a danger for us here in the same vein as the disciples, what they're experiencing as well. You've seen the facility that, that the Lord has enabled us to put together. It's, it's magnificent. It's beautiful. It's something we could, we could kind of get proud about, right? And I want you to hear what Jesus says to his disciples, not as a, as a rebuke, but just as a word of caution. Just as a word of caution. Look in verse 2. Jesus says, do you see all of these great buildings? He doesn't deny. It's great. Do you see all of these great buildings? Jesus replied. Not one stone here will be left on another. Everyone will be thrown down. Everyone will be thrown down. The natural response to this, Jesus is is correcting their hope. He's correcting their hope. He says, listen, I, I know this is a great building, but be careful. Don't put your hope in buildings or religious institutions. They come and they go. They get torn down, just like this building. Not one, not one stone is going to remain. And the natural response to this prophecy, the disciples, they, they say, well, they want to know when is this going to happen? What signs, what signs will you give us to know when, when this great structure is, is going to be demolished? And Jesus, as we, we're going to read, he, he is going to prophesy, but he's not just going to prophesy. He's going to let them know when they can expect this to happen, but he's not just going to do that. He's teaching and instruction and instructing his followers. And as he's teaching them, he's teaching us as well. As we'll read together, Jesus, as he prophesies about what I believe is the destruction of this second temple, which happens in AD 70, at the fall of Jerusalem. As he prophesies about this place being destroyed, he gives warnings along the way that instructs our hearts and theirs. Essentially, he says, listen, fellas, there's a danger to put your hope in in buildings and structures and institutions. Don't do that. There's a danger to put your trust in miracles and miracle workers. Do not do that. There's a danger to put your trust in governments. Don't do that either. Don't do that either. And as we read through it, you're also going to see there's a danger as we go through our lives, having heard the word and the promises of God, and then suffering comes. Jesus, you came, you said you were going to reinstitute all things, and now you're gone, and now we're suffering. Where are you? And there's a danger when God feels absent for us to lose our trust in him. And he warns them in this passage through the prophecy. When suffering comes... Do not misplace your trust in the Lord. Persevere. Keep trusting. Remember that even though you cannot feel the care of God right now, He does care. He has a plan for the future. Not just yours, but all of human history. Everything is purposeful and meaningful. God is active. He is working. All that happens is purposeful. You can, you should, persevere in trusting God. And thus... As Jesus prophesies in these, previ- in these preceding verses, which we'll read, we get a sort of movie tra- trailer of sorts foretelling what is going to happen in the future. Now, before we read it, 
I have to, to bring you up to speed on something. This is a very hotly debated uh, section of, of Scripture. Maybe not for you all, but in the theological world, this is a hot topic, okay? So there's a lot of, there's a lot of opinions about what Jesus is talking about here. Is he referring to the destruction of the temple and the destruction of the, the old order of things? So the Jewish sacrificial system, the age of the Jews, that whole religious thing. Is that what he's, he's referring to as coming to an end with the destruction of the temple? Or is he looking further out to his second coming? Now, there's a lot of debate about this. And before we, we move into things, I just want us as a church, let's just all agree that this is not worth fighting over right? You've probably all been or heard the discussions about, you know, premillennialism, amillennialism, when Jesus is coming back, if there's going to be a rapture, if there's going to be a great tribulation, if the church is going to experience that or not, and everybody's got an opinion on it, right? About when Jesus is coming back and what that's going to look like. Personally, I'm a panmillennialist. That means it'll all pan out in the end, okay? <laughs> it's all going to pan out. There's a right answer, but like, we can just agree as a church, it's not something worth leaving a church over, having differences of opinions about this, nor is it worth fighting over. Jesus is coming back, and we win. What that looks like, some of, some of us and our opinions are right, and we'll know that when it happens. But until that happens, it's just not worth fighting over. So I'm going to give you my opinion for how I think we should interpret this, along with some other ideas. But I don't want to fight with you about it, because Jesus is King and Lord, and he's coming back, and it's all going to pan out in the end. Okay? So... Here's what I think Jesus is prophesying about. I think he is speaking to his hearers, the people that were listening to him then. And I think he he is primarily speaking about a future event that they're going to experience. The destruction of the temple in 70 AD. And I think that for three reasons. One, because of verse 30. Verse 30, Jesus says, And I tell you, This generation will certainly not pass away until all of these things happen. The most obvious reading of what he says right there is this generation, meaning the people that are listening to me right now. Now, there's some other ways to to take that, but the most obvious one is that he's speaking to who he's speaking to, okay? So that's the first reason. The second reason is... And I'm not going to unpack all of this, but there's a man named Josephus who is a a Jewish historian. Another guy named Tacitus, also a Jewish historian. If you go and read, especially Josephus' work, The History of the Jews, he records the destruction of the temple. And what he writes so clearly lines up with what Jesus said would happen and then does happen. It's beyond coincidence. Again, I'm not going to go through it, but that link right there that's up on the screen, the QR code, I'll also put it online if you don't want to take a picture of it now, is to a, a, a series of videos by a guy named R.C. Sproul, where he goes in-depth through, you don't have to read it, if you don't like to read, he goes in-depth through the sections of Josephus' history about the destruction of the temple, and it, it like falls almost word for word about what Jesus said is going to happen and then does happen in 70 AD. So the account from history that we have would lead me to believe that Jesus is primarily talking about the destruction of the temple for his hearers. And then lastly, Jesus quotes extensively in this section from the Old Testament. He quotes directly from Daniel 7. He also alludes to other passages with symbolic language, and that language is important. 
So it would be like this. If, if uh, I asked you, let's say you saw a movie trailer about the very last Star Wars movie, right? All right. One of y'all Star Wars, yeah. So you watch that movie trailer, and then I asked you to tell me the entire history and, and scope of Star Wars, right? How Vader came to be and all, all of that stuff. But you only have a two-minute segment, right? Do you think you could very accurately tell me what that trailer was talking about? Of course you couldn't. When we read the New Testament, and we don't have a very good understanding of the Old Testament... Making interpretive decisions is like trying to fill in the backstory of Star Wars off of a movie trailer. So when Jesus quotes from the Old Testament and uses symbolic language from these prophecies, we need to go back and understand what those prophecies were talking about and their fulfillment and the context of all of those things. And that will inform how how we, we interpret things in the present. If you were to go back, and we're not going to go back to all of them, if you were to go back and look at all the allusions and references of language and symbolism and the direct quotations, it seems to imply not necessarily the end of human history as we know it, but more likely the end of the Jewish age and the beginning of the new covenant, where the sacrificial system is done with and God writes his word on our hearts and we become the temple and the Holy Spirit is inside of us and we all have access to him in this new age because of the blood of Jesus. So for those three reasons, I think that is primarily what this text is talking about. Now, that said, verse 32, verse 32 is is a sticky one, okay? And we'll look at this. Verse 32, it seems like Jesus takes a breath and he's been looking at the destruction of the temple and telling the people like, hey, here's what's going to happen. And then it's like, he's like, but everything that you see and experience here, that pattern is going to repeat itself before I come back. So there might be two frames of reference, okay? And I'm willing to give that. It's called a type If you're into theology, there's a type, a prophecy where there's more than one fulfillment. So we see this this pattern continue and repeat itself throughout human history. So all of that happens with the destruction of the temple, but then it could possibly happen as we look forward to Christ's second coming as well. So I know that's a little theology, but I wanted to bring you up to speed with that. So with all of that background, let's keep working through the text. Mark chapter 13, verse 5. These are the warnings along with the prophecies. So Jesus says, he says to them, Watch out that no one deceives you. Many will come in my name claiming I am he and will deceive many. And verse 22 is in line with this as well. He says, For false messiahs and false prophets will appear and perform signs and wonders and deceive, if possible, even the elect. So here Jesus is saying, As you notice the signs of the time, looking forward to the destruction of the temple, looking forward to my eventual return. As you notice the signs, be on guard. Be on guard. Don't trust in buildings. Buildings fall. This building is going to fall. Also, don't trust in miracles alone. Don't trust in miracle workers. Now, I am not suggesting that our God no longer does miracles. I think he can. And he does. I think he can heal people, and he does heal people. I think he uses miracles to affirm his word and to send out his gospel in power. I pray that he does more miracles here. That said, miracles can be counterfeit. 
Satan and demons have a certain degree of power. They can counterfeit supernatural signs and wonders. And so Jesus is saying, listen, as people come, even if they do miracles, don't necessarily be too quick to trust them. Test what they're doing. What's the fruit of the miracle? Does it accord with the scripture, with what God has already said? Jesus warns. He says, don't trust every miracle or every miracle worker that comes along. Trust God's word. Trust God's word above everything else. Trust Jesus who says his words will never pass away. This church is why we will never stop preaching the Bible here. Never. Again, I I pray for miracles and I pray for the power of God to confirm the gospel message through miracles within our midst. But even more than miracles, I pray for the preaching of God's word to go forth. Because the word of God and the gospel of Jesus Christ is the power of God to change our hearts and our world. Hopefully, miracles will accompany the preaching. But at the end of the day, it's the good news about Jesus. That he came, that he died, and that he rose again as Savior and Lord. That message is what will change our world. And that's what we need. And so that's what we will continue to preach until Jesus comes back. Jesus continues in verse 7. When you hear of wars and rumors of wars... Don't be alarmed. Such things must happen, but the end is still to come. Nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in various places and famines. These are the beginning of the birth pains. Jesus says, as you look out at the world, governments, kingdoms, they will fight and they will fail. Pretty accurate description of what we can see and experience. Nature will bring about devastation and suffering on the earth. Jesus says, when you see this, when you see this, little flock, don't be alarmed. Don't be alarmed. God is aware of it, and it is purposeful. He says, as a woman who is going through the pains of child labor, so too, the world, nature, will experience contractions as we await for Christ to bring all things into restoration, into redemption. He says, as we see these signs, do not be alarmed. Don't be surprised. All of this has to take place before the end, Jesus says. Don't be alarmed, he says. But, verse 9, you must be on your guard. Be on your guard, He says, you'll be handed over to the local councils and flogged in the synagogues. On account of me, you will stand before governments or governors and kings as witnesses to them. And the gospel must first be preached to all nations. Whenever you are arrested and brought to trial, do not worry beforehand about what you will say. Just say whatever is given to you at the time, for it is not you speaking, but the Holy Spirit speaking through you. Jesus says, I don't want you to trust in buildings. My church, the power of the gospel, does not reside in a building. We are his church. This building is a tool. Don't trust in buildings. He says also, don't trust in in miracles alone or miracle workers alone. Don't trust in governments, he says. Trust in him and his word. And don't waver in that trust when you experience persecution, pain, and suffering, which you most definitely 
will. Trust in God who lives in you through the Holy Spirit. He will guide you, Jesus tells us. You don't have to worry about what to say. You don't have to worry about your future. The Spirit of Jesus lives in you. Listen to him, he says. Trust him. See, church, you and I, we are caught off guard sometimes by the future. What Jesus shows us here is that he never is. He never is. No matter what you experience, no matter how unexpected things are in your life, God is never caught off guard and you can trust him. You can trust him. This same God who prophesied time and time and time again that he would come and then did as Jesus through Mary in a manger is the same God that gives us a a little glimpse into the future and makes a promise, a prophecy. That same God that promised he would come and did is the same God that tells us about our future and we can trust that he will make good on his promise in the way that he always has. Verse 12. Verse 12, Jesus continues. He says, as we see these signs, looking forward to the destruction of the temple, looking forward to his eventual return, brother will will betray brother to death, and father his child. Children will rebel against their parents and have them put to death. Everyone will hate you because of me, but the one who stands firm to the end will be saved. I haven't highlighted this one yet by way of a warning. But Jesus here warns us not just of uh, a mistrust of buildings or governments or miracles. He warns us to not be too quick to trust family either. This is a tough one for us. Because in a a small rural town like this, we, we say things like, blood runs deep. Because it does. Of course, if you're going to be loyal to anyone, you ought to ultimately be loyal to your family. And that's true to an extent. But church, there is something that runs deeper than the blood of family. There is something that is more important than the blood that exists between our families. And that is the blood of Jesus Christ. The blood that he covers us with. I heard a preacher say this recently and I've kind of made it a mantra in my home because I think it strikes such an appropriate balance of of a warning not to trust too much in our family and not allow our love for our family to corrupt our loyalty to King Jesus. This preacher, he said, listen, this is what I tell my sons and daughters. I am not for you, and I'm not against you. I am for Jesus. That means if you are for the things of Jesus, if you are for King Jesus, then son, then daughter, I am for you. But child, if you are against the things of Jesus, if you are against his word, and you are against him, then I love you, but I am against you because my loyalty to King Jesus trumps even my loyalty to my family and my flesh and blood because I am united to the family of God, not through DNA, not through some Jewish roots, but through the blood of King Jesus that he covered and poured out on the cross. As we move forward and think about this season of Advent and think about the coming of Jesus, think about what Christ has done for you. He left the most beautiful and amazing gated community ever known, ever, to come into the ghetto of this world for you. And not to be served, he came to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. I know you all have some pretty amazing moms and dads. 
Some of y'all have some pretty amazing brothers and sisters and aunts and uncles, but ain't nobody done for you what Jesus has done for you on the cross. Our loyalty must trump our loyalty to our family. We must love Jesus more than we even love our own families. And I know that is incredibly painful and difficult. And so Jesus knows this too, but he gives us this warning here. As we see the signs, brother will turn against brother, father will turn against child, mother against daughter. To those who stand firm, he says, you will be saved. You will be saved. Verses 14 through 19 then give a little bit more specifics prophetically of what Jesus has foretold is going to happen, I believe, concerning the destruction of the temple. I'll let you read that for yourself. It's, it's gnarly. It's real gnarly what happens. And then what G- Josephus records. Jerusalem comes under, under siege. That, that means they block up the city gates. They don't let any, anybody in. They don't let any food in, any water in, and starvation is horrible. Josephus records, actually, that, that there's a mother who's nursing her child, and she becomes so hungry that she, she roasts her child and eats him or her. So gruesome. The suffering that happened is, is, is beyond anything that you and I have ever experienced. And I want you to pay attention to verse 20. Even as you suffer, even as you go through life and, and it's hard and, and, you, and you question and you wonder, does Jesus deserve my loyalty? Can he be trusted? Look at what I'm going through. Look at what he says in verse 20. If the Lord had not cut short those days, if he had not cut short those days, no one would survive. But for the sake of the elect whom he has chosen, he shortened them. God shortened the suffering. Church, Jesus tells us of a time where suffering will be so severe for his hearers, they may begin to question God's goodness. They may begin to question God's faithfulness. They may feel as though they've been forsaken and forgotten and neglected by God. But I want you to see the hope and the compassion that exists here in verse 20. Jesus is recorded here as saying, he says, perhaps when his own people will be complaining about his absence or lack of presence, God actually shortens such times for the good of his people. Church, we are unwise to pass judgment as though we have the full story when we're suffering. We don't. Living by faith often means simply trusting when we cannot see. God is still good, even when our lives are not. There's a children's book. It's written in response to um, a couple that experienced a, a miscarriage. And they had other children. And it was, it was a late-term miscarriage. And the, the gentleman who authors the book wrote it to, to try and explain to his children what happened. It's called The Moon is Always Round. He goes through the story as, as the months go on, and every night he has his son and daughters, they come out and they, they look at the moon, and you know the progression, it, it waxes and it wanes and it looks like a sliver, and sometimes it's not there, but the constant refrain in the book is, but the moon is always round. And at the end, they're at a eulogy for their, 
their child that, that was not born. And he's preaching about the goodness of God. And he says, even when we cannot see God's goodness, he is still good. Just like when we look up into the sky and we cannot see the moon. And he, he asks his son out in the audience, what do we know? And the child says, the moon is always round. It's always round. And God is always good. He cares. Even when we cannot feel it, he cares. He's working for those who have been called according to his purposes. If you have faith in Jesus, that's you. You've been called. And God is always good. And he's always working for you. Verses 21 through 23 are yet more warnings about how we need to be discerning against false teachers and even some of the miracles that they work, which we've already read. And then we'll move down into verses 24 through 27, where again we'll see Jesus paraphrase using the Old Testament language, a direct quotation from Daniel 7. Uh, He tells us what's going to happen. Verse 24, But in those days, following that distress, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light. The stars will fall from the sky and the heavenly bodies will be shaken. This is an allusion to Isaiah 13 and 34 and also Joel 2. Verse 26 says, At that time people will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds with great power and glory. It's a direct quotation from Daniel 7 verse 13. In verse 27 he says, And he will send his angels and gather his elect from the four winds from the ends of the earth to the ends of the heavens. And then Jesus tells his disciple, pay attention to these signs. Verse 28, learn this lesson from the fig tree, he says. As soon as the twigs get tender and its leaves come out, you know that summer is near. Even so, when you see these things happening, you know that it is near, right at the door. Truly, I tell you, this generation will certainly not pass away until all these things have happened. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words never will. And then, here's the shift in verse 32. If he's been primarily speaking about the destruction of the temple, and all of the sun, moon, and stars, that could mean literal, like a cosmic destruction of the sun and stars, kind of like the Armageddon thing, which most of us assume. But if you actually go back to it, when that language is used in the Old Testament, sun, moon, and stars usually implies spiritual beings and authorities. So if Jesus is bringing an end to the Jewish age, to the the religious institution that did exist, the sun, moon, and stars could mean the religious leaders of the Jewish age. And him coming on, on the clouds in glory could mean him ascending up into heaven and seating himself at the right hand of God where he is presently ruling and reigning today in the church age. Okay? So that's kind of one way we could take that. And then verse 32 shifts. So if he's been looking at the temple time and now he looks forward, he says, all of these things that we've seen happen or that you will see happen, you can continue to see this cycle repeated until I return. So pay attention to these signs. Verse 32, but about the day or hour, no one knows. Not even the angels in heaven know, nor the son of man, but only the father. Be on guard. Be alert. You do not know when that time will come. It's like a man going away. He leaves his house and puts his servants in charge, each with their assigned task. And he tells the one at the door to keep watch. Therefore, keep watch, 
because you do not know when the owner of the house will come back, whether in the evening or at midnight or when the rooster crows at dawn. If he continues or if he comes suddenly, do not let him find you sleeping. What I say to you, I say to everyone, watch. All right. That was a lot of verses. Covered them quick. The prophetic here, in the future telling sense, whether it's about the birth of Christ or the destruction of Jerusalem or the second coming of Christ, it always piques our interest, right? And always causes a bunch of speculation. But here again, we see another warning from Jesus. Don't put your hope in trying to figure out the dates and times. He doesn't even know when he's coming back. Don't get too caught up in trying to predict the, the end or the second coming. Don't, don't get too caught up in that. Jesus offers us a warning. He says, don't trust religious institutions or buildings. Don't trust governments or miracle workers. Don't even place all of your trust in your family. Be loyal to Jesus. And don't worry too much about when he's coming back. Know that he is and stay watchful and alert. Church, there... There is a segment of the church, I don't know if it's just in America, I know the American church, where we, we get really caught up on, on looking at everything that's happening in Israel and all the rumors of wars, and, and we, 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 we're alarmist. Even though Jesus says, as you see wars and rumors of wars and natural disasters and all things, don't be alarmed, we're alarmed, right? We're like a car alarm, constantly going off. Jesus is coming back, he's coming back, you know, run for cover. That is not what Jesus tells us we are supposed to be doing. We are not supposed to be praying for the return of Christ in a way that that we are hunkering down and hiding out and sleeping, as the text says, right? We're we're running away from our culture because we're afraid and and the judgment is coming. And man, Jesus, I wish you would come back already because this world, goodness, all these pagans and everything they're doing and the sexual stuff and all, it's crazy. Just come back already and, and be done with all these people. That is not the attitude that Christ calls us to have. What does he say in this text? He says, listen, I'm in charge, and I'm going to leave for a while. And when I leave, I'm going to put you in charge. As you look to the signs, and here are some of them, about my return. Don't be alarmed. Don't fall asleep. Don't hide out and hunker down. You be about the tasks that I have given you. And you say, Levi, what are those tasks? Proclaim the good news of Jesus. Not in condemnation. You guys are going to burn and you better turn or burn because Jesus is coming back real soon, by the way, and you better get on his team or he is going to smote you. No, that's not how Jesus came, right? When he came, what did he do? He invited people to dine with him. The sinners and the tax collectors and all those religious people that were eagerly awaiting the judgment of God, calling down fire and brimstone. So how dare you eat with this people? What did Jesus do? He told him, listen, the sick don't need a doctor or the healthy don't need a doctor. I came for the sick. I came for those who know they need a savior. I came for the people who know they are sinful. I came not to bring condemnation, I came to bring love, to bring escape from that condemnation. Church, as we look to the signs, and there are lots of them, 
I like to tell people, you know, when Jesus come back? It's like, oh, we're one day closer. I don't know. We're one day closer, right? Let's not hide out and hunker down. Let's not be like an, an annoying car alarm that's constantly preaching hellfire and brimstone and condemnation and, 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 and moving away from culture. Let's engage with our culture and with our friends and our relatives and, and our loved ones and the people in Malawi and the people in Basque country and the people that we work with. Let's engage with them in a loving way the way that Jesus would and tell them, listen, Jesus is coming back. He is coming back, and he's good, and he loves you, and you can know him. Just like in the days of Noah. Noah had the good news. Listen, we've fallen. Judgment is coming in the form of a flood. But God's having me build this boat, and if you would get on it with me, we can escape what's coming. And no one did, except his family, and they were spared. We carry the message of Noah. During Christmas, Jesus said he would come and he came. He will make good on his promise. He said he would come again and he will. And until that time, your job and my job is not to shout at our world. It's to lovingly invite them to get into the boat of Jesus with us and experience refuge and peace and joy that is represented through Christmas. Like a good movie trailer, Jesus tells us, he gives us a glimpse of the future. And he does so with an aim. He wants the then, the then that he tells us about, he wants that to shape our here and now. He promises us, heaven and earth will pass away. But the word of Jesus, Jesus himself and all of those who have faith, who have entered into him, we will never pass away. Church, you've been shown a glimpse of what will happen then. Don't leave here this morning without letting that then reshape your here and now. Let's pray. Father, thank you that you love us. Thank you that you haven't been so specific um, with these things that, Lord, sometimes they're specific. We're not good with specifics, Jesus. People were squabbling about the body of Moses, and you're like, I. In Jude, you talk about how you're going you're gonna to take the body of Moses so people don't start a call around his body and all this stuff. You, just, you give us enough of what we need to know so that we don't start drinking the Kool-Aid, so to speak. You give us enough of what we need to know to have faith, to have hope, to trust your goodness and your promises, but not so much that we can corrupt it. I thank you for your grace and your wisdom and the revelation that you do give to us. Father, it can be a scary thing thinking about the future. But I thank you that we've seen throughout the history of your word recorded. When you've said something is going to happen, we've seen it always comes to pass. The birth of Christ, the destruction of the temple, and eventually your coming return. I pray this morning as you've given us a glimpse of some of those things that will happen. I pray that you would help us to live without fear. Understanding that although we may be caught off guard by the future, you never are. And no matter what happens, the moon is always round and you are always good. Give us faith to trust you, Lord Jesus, we pray. For our joy and your glory, amen.